So this was a couple of years ago, and I was working in a crisis unit, which is sort of like a, an ER for psychiatry. And law enforcement brought this guy in. He was 19, but he was a high school student. He was kind of an old high school student. And his classmates had, I think, told a teacher. And then teacher eventually called law enforcement. And then the FBI got involved, too, because he had been posting some stuff on his Instagram that people were really freaked out about. There's a picture of him with a gun that he had bought recently. And there was some stuff about Columbine you know, nothing specific, nothing threatening, but kind of heralding other mass shootings. He had talked about the Isla Vista shooter. And, you know, I don't think he had a lot of friends in his high school to start with, but kids started getting kind of scared of him. And one kid said that he had mentioned something, you know, again, not like a specific threat, but sort of a something's going to happen or like it's it's going to come here too. You know, these really vague notions about stuff. Anyway, people were, like, rightfully very concerned. And law enforcement got involved. The FBI got involved because it was social media posting. And they brought this kid into the crisis unit for a psychiatric evaluation. This is one of those moments where I'm like, oh, no, I don't know what I'm supposed to do here. Because my job, really, in that moment is to evaluate this kid and see if he meets criteria for an involuntary hold, which means basically putting him in a psych hospital against his will. I'm taking him out of his home, out of his school, away from his family, pets, friends, everything. And it's not something you do lightly, right? You do it because somebody's either so dangerous to themselves or so dangerous to somebody else that it's not safe for them to be out there or because they just like absolutely can't take care of themselves because they're so psychotic. They're not eating or not toileting or whatever. So I talked to this guy and he just seems like sort of a typical morose teenager little bit into violent military video games, like most guys his age, into guns, says he was just joking, says, you know, I wasn't going to do anything. I'm not stupid. But it's pretty creepy, like I see some of the posts from law enforcement. And on the face of it, you know, this isn't a kid who meets criteria for an involuntary hold because he doesn't seem to have any kind of psychotic disorder. He's not manic. He's not even particularly depressed. So he's not somebody that meets involuntary hold criteria because it has to be due to a mental illness. We're a psych hospital, so our job isn't to sweep the streets of everybody who's potentially violent or dangerous. It's to get people into treatment when they can't get themselves into treatment or aren't willing to get themselves into treatment. Treat them, get them better, and get them back out. And I'm looking at this guy and I'm like, I don't know what I would be treating here. I don't know what I could get better in the somewhat limited stay we can offer within a psychiatric hospital. Because the other thing is, once you put somebody on a hold, you have your initial three-day 5150, and you have a 14-day 5250, and then you're kind of done. It's really hard to hold people beyond that. At that point, you're looking at like a jury trial. So you have 17 days to fix the problem, essentially. And I'm not really seeing a problem that is fixable with 17 days with this kid. But on the other hand, here's law enforcement saying, well, he's got a gun at home. He's posting stuff about mass shooters. Kids at his high school are so freaked out they're not coming to school. Teachers are calling out. And we don't have any legal recourse. We can't arrest this kid. He hasn't done anything wrong. He owns the gun legally. And basically, like, they had nothing that they could charge him with. So anyway, you know, I I talked to law enforcement, and they're basically pleading, like, please hang on to this kid for a little while. I've had this happen before, and... When you bring somebody in on a hold, they have the right to a hearing before a hearing officer or a judge within a certain amount of time. 
And in the past, I've had the judge release those kids. In this case, this was not too long after Parkland, and I think the landscape of what judges were willing to do had changed. I did hold this guy. I admitted him to the psych hospital. It was a little bit of a sort of soft admit by criteria, but he came in, and when he went to his hearing, the judge held him, and I think it was because judges read the news too. He didn't want his name on that release. Oh man, that's a tough situation. Mass shootings make up a fraction of firearm-related deaths, but are a major area of public concern and put us all in a very difficult spot. Which is why this topic is so important. This is our last episode in a series on firearm injury reduction. We are still discussing this with the Bullet Points Project's own Dr. Amy Barnhorst. All right, let's jump into the interview. Okay, so in this series, we've reviewed approach and assess, and now we're coming to the last part of the framework for firearm violence prevention, which is ACT. So what is our role beyond asking questions? What are things we can actually do? The ACT section is set up to give you some tools that are going to vary with the type of risk and also the level of risk. And frankly, some of these things vary with who you are, what kind of practice you're in, what type of provider you are as well. The lowest risk one is the safe storage option, and anyone can counsel on safe storage. So this is a great choice for, you know, you see a kid who's come in with an accidental gunshot wound, or you see a pair in your primary care clinic that has kids at home and keeps a, a handgun in their, you know, desk drawer for safety. And this is a non-invasive approach to give them some information, some advice, some counseling, maybe a flyer about how to store firearms safely. And I think this is especially important now that we have so many new gun owners, both in California and in the country, because of the big surge in purchasing during COVID. So we have a lot of people who, you know, are brand new firearm owners and maybe of a demographic that is not as connected to the gun culture. And they didn't grow up in a family where guns were really important. They're not part of a shooting club. They don't go to a range. They may be on their own just thinking, like, I'm going to get a gun because I wanted to protect myself during COVID. And then they kind of put it in a drawer and forgot about it. And now they've got, you know, their kids are getting older. And safe storage is just telling people about how you can keep your firearms stored in the safest way possible within the home. There's always a balance between the safest way to store a gun and having the gun readily accessible to use. But ideally, you want to keep it unloaded locked up with a locking device like a cable lock or in a in a safe or a lockbox separate from the ammunition. And, and this is really crucial, making sure that if there's a combo or keys to the storage device, that the people that you don't want accessing the gun, like your depressed teenager or your father with dementia, that they don't know the combo. It's not your like standard family four-digit code that everybody knows, or it's not, you know, the keys aren't just in the top drawer of the, the kitchen um, hutch. So making sure that things are inaccessible. And this is this is a really good option for anyone who has a firearm in the home. Or if somebody in the home who's not the firearm owner is at risk and somebody else is willing to kind of put some space between them and the gun by locking it away from them. So that's a good starter. That's a good starter action you can yeah, take like if that, you're not yeah. comfortable. Then the other actions are organized by kind of like higher levels of risk. So the next one is temporary transfer. This is a great option for somebody who 
is at risk, but is also very willing to collaborate. And that's something we didn't talk as much about in the assessment. But there are folks who are going to say, like, yeah, I recognize my risk. I don't want to die. I don't want someone in my family to get hurt. What can I do? Let's work together on this problem. And there are going to be other people who say, uh, no way, I don't want to have this conversation. I'm not willing to do anything differently. Leave me alone. If someone's not willing to collaborate on this, then you have to decide if the risk is high enough that it merits an emergency intervention. In the case of temporary transfer, this is for somebody who says, yes, let's let's work together. Let's play ball. I want to decrease this risk. And it's about having a discussion about where can we where can we store your guns out of the house temporarily during a time of crisis? Oftentimes this is, you know, I think we talked about a situation about this earlier on that with a family member, with the daughter who's concerned about her dad. Putting the guns in her house for a while until, you know, his depression is treated or his divorce resolves or whatever it is. Sometimes folks may have a, you know, hunting buddy, a person from their shooting club that they can store it with. They also, um, in a number of places, there are gun shops, ranges, and even some law enforcement agencies that will take people's firearms temporarily. They have different policies. But that's a good way to kind of work together with somebody if they're, you know, not at super high acute risk right now. You trust them. You think they're invested. But they have things where, like, you know, sometimes they drink too much and they get real depressed then and they're at risk of making a suicide attempt while they're intoxicated. Then we get into higher risk situations. So mental health holds can be an option, particularly because, as we said earlier, most firearm deaths in the U.S. are suicides. And people with mental illness who need mental health treatment are at higher risk of suicide than the general population. Oftentimes, folks think, oh, well, anyone who's threatening violence, particularly mass shooting, must be by definition mentally ill, so they should go into the mental health system. But it's important to remember that most violence is not caused by mental illness, and the mental health system really isn't set up to, again, sweep the streets of potentially violent offenders and put them in a psych hospital, and then I'm not quite sure what. But for folks who are at risk of suicide or people who are at risk of violence because of a mental illness, a mental health hold can treat the risk factors that they have for violence, like get their depression better, or maybe they're delusional and they think they need to defend themselves against their neighbors. They may treat their delusions with antipsychotics. They'll get better, realize they don't need to defend themselves. Mental health holds are not specifically designed to remove firearms from somebody's possession, but they can be a way to separate that person from their guns temporarily while they're in treatment. And if somebody stays in a hospital long enough that they're committed psychiatrically, like they go to their hearing before a judge and the judge keeps them there and formally commits them, then they do become a prohibited person from owning firearms in the future. So they wouldn't pass a background check. However, if they have a bunch of guns at home, it doesn't do anything about the weapons they already have. And so it's important to keep in mind that just putting somebody on a mental health hold doesn't like just, you know, absolve any responsibility we have about addressing the firearms. I saw a patient in the ER recently who was on a hold. She'd come in. She was suicidal. Even though there's a carve-out within the 5150 that if law enforcement find the patient with a firearm in their possession or on their person, they can temporarily remove it. Law enforcement hadn't done that. So this woman had a gun at her house. She was suicidal. She came to the ER and for a variety of reasons, I knew she was never going to get to a psych hospital. And at some point, her time was going to run out. And we were going to have to discharge her. But I also knew she was suicidal. Nothing had really changed in her life. She was going to be chronically suicidal and at risk. And there was a gun at her house. And she didn't really have anyone in her life who we could temporarily transfer the firearm to. And she wasn't willing to voluntarily engage. 
But she was never going to reach that point of commitment in a psych hospital where she became a prohibited person. And even if she were, somebody would have had to go back and get the firearm. So it's important to like think about folks who have who are on holds or in the ER or in a psych hospital on a mental health hold. It doesn't necessarily make all the guns vaporize and disappear. You still have to deal with them. In California, we do have a program that once you become a prohibited person after your commitment to a psych hospital, they will cross-check your name in the database of registered firearm owners and go out and retrieve weapons that are now illegally owned. But that, that can take a while. So you want to make sure that if somebody's on a mental health hold, you actually address the, the firearm specifically. And then maybe the kind of like highest risk, most emergency action you can take is something called, uh, in California, we call it a gun violence restraining order. Other states call it an extreme risk protection order. They're also known as red flag laws. And this is a civil order that specifically addresses a risky person's access to guns. So if somebody's making threats, if somebody is acutely suicidal, if um, if they have guns or have the ability to access guns or purchase guns, then a family member or law enforcement, or in California, we also have uh, the potential for some employers and school officials to petition. They can go to a judge and get an order that allows the guns that that person has currently to be removed from their possession and also blocks them from buying more guns for a limited duration. There is due process built into this, so it sounds, you know, kind of wild that we would be able to just file an order and have somebody's firearm rights removed. But the person does get a hearing in court before the judge, and they get a chance to argue their case after the emergency or ex parte order has gone through during the moment of crisis. And if the judge decides that they're not actually at risk and they don't meet criteria for this, they can um, return the, the guns to that person, or the judge can decide to extend the order. So this is what I talked to law enforcement about filing on the story I told about the kid who came in who'd been posting scary stuff on Instagram and had a gun at home. Um, it's also something I've used in cases where I've seen people like this woman I talked about who are at risk of suicide but have guns at home, and I don't want them to get admitted to a psych hospital. I think it's better for their whole situation if they can go home, be with their pets, be with their family, be in their school or their job, but I don't want that gun in the house when I do that. And so these can be a way, if the person's not willing to relinquish that firearm, to have law enforcement remove it. Let's go back to the safe storage idea. Um, let's say that I have a 10-year-old from a rural area who presents with a like just a fingertip injury, super mm -hmm. minor, right? But he was playing with his father's gun when it accidentally discharged and it hurt the tip of his fingers. What questions should I ask as the treating physician? Walk me through that conversation. That's a tricky one. So I, I think the first thing that me being a judgmental person would have to do is kind of like take a step and remove my prejudice and judgment and assumptions about what happened. Yeah. And in a really neutral way that comes from the heart, get a sense of what went on in this situation. You know, like what went wrong? And hear from the family, hear from the kid, and really make it an open space for them to share. Not, you know, because you're going to criminally prosecute the father for negligence, but because, hey, you're a physician. You want to help with the health and safety of their family going forward. And getting a sense of, you know, was the kid playing with the gun unsupervised when the parents weren't home because it was left loaded? Was Were they out at the range together and their, their range safety skills and their firearm handling skills were not as safe as they could have been? Um, 
does the father not really have a good sense and needs to take a, a gun safety class so that he understands what the what the rules are for handling safe firearms and can share that with the kid? You know, is safe storage really going to be a safe storage ad- advice going to be enough? Can they afford to have a good lockbox or a gun safe to keep their firearms in? Um, really getting like a big picture sense of what is going on in this family and what happened in this particular incident and putting it all in the context of, you know, not judgment, not crime, not good or bad, but like risk and safety. And how can we help you going forward kind of solve this this together? It's a tell me more kind of scenario. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's always my tell me that's more. A good, tell that's me a more. great phrase. Tell me more. <laughs> okay. But do I need to report that? Like, do I need to report that to CPS? Do I need to report that to mm. law enforcement? Like a gun discharge, what do I need to do about that? A child was injured, albeit, you know, minor in the grand scheme of things, but do I need to report that? That is a good question that I don't exactly know the answer to. I know in California, we do have child access prevention laws. So, you know, if the father went to work, left his gun on the dining room table and the kid got it, and that's how he got, you know, shot in the finger, that is a violation of our child access prevention laws and the father can be liable. You know, you're not going to be the one to press charges, but that's if criminal charges become part of it. Oftentimes a family, you know, that's the last thing they need at that point. But it is technically a crime to let in California your kid have unfettered access to your firearm. I think actually in our emergency department, when uh, there's been a GSW, I think that we automatically have a report. Like I think in our emergency department, it's automatic. Like I don't actually usually fill it out, but I think that at least in hospitals that I've worked at, there's an automatic report. I think that it's one of those like reportable state incidents because there's huge databases of gunshot wounds. And I think that's where it comes from that somebody is reporting it, but it's not like a it's not like a CPS thing where there's some sort right. of subjective, like, is this potential right. neglect or abuse? Yeah. In our emergency departments, we have our social workers involved yeah. in all of these yes, scenarios. Exactly. And I guess the part that I struggle with not having something like that be automatic is then it leaves it open to my bias, right? Like, right. you look like me. Maybe you look like my grandpa who right. was out, you know, well, actually, none of my grandpas were gun enthusiasts, but <laughs> <laughs> said generic, gra- yeah. Jonathan's grandfather. <laughs> but you look like somebody that I know, and therefore I could see this as an accident. Therefore, I'm not going to report you versus you. You don't look like right. somebody I know or I feel comfortable with. And so therefore, I'm going to report you. I, like, where does that bias come in when we yeah. take away objectivity? You I mean, know? there's so much of that bias. And I, and I do think you're right that gunshot wounds themselves are reportable. But the criminal aspect of having your kid have yeah. access to your gun, you know, that's more subjective. And I know that is something that people occasionally leverage. And also, if you don't, store mm-hmm. your firearm safely, this can happen. Mm. And sometimes the potential legal repercussions of that can be motivating yeah. for parents. So what are actionable items that I would suggest to that family? You know, again, it's sort of based on what actually happened. But I would say having a real cogent discussion with them about safe storage in the home. And again, that's going to depend on who's in the home and what kind of guns they have and why do they have them. And are these just, you know, guns that they take out and shoot occasionally on their property and they don't need them for self-protection. They feel safe in their area and they're willing to, you know, get a safe and put it in the garage and they can afford a safe and they have a garage, keep it off site. Or is this a kind of situation where they feel really unsafe and the father feels strongly that he or the mother needs to have a handgun at the ready in the house? Then you're talking about a different kind of storage setup 
where they could have quick access, like a lockbox. Was this something that happened under a supervised, allegedly supervised, I use finger quotes there, range day, and that's how the kid got hurt? And, you know, how can you maybe get the dad and the kid more in touch with some organizations that do a lot of safe handling training and kind of reinforce the importance of that to them? So those principles really require that we know more about the situation, the tell me more, and also about the types of safe storage and guns that are available. Yeah. So kind of bringing all that stuff from the approach in of like making it individualized for their family and their situation and utilizing all that information that you've now educated yourself with about various types of guns and storage and reasons for ownership. So I want to go back to that patient we talked about in the last episode, this 85-year-old man who has some alcohol use disorder. He is coming in with his daughter after his wife died recently, and the daughter's worried that he might be suicidal. Let's say this guy is an avid sports shooter. He likes to go to the range, and um, so he has his guns around, and they're a big part of his life. But she's really worried about his mental state. Let's say in this scenario that he is willing to collaborate on a safety plan. What are our actions here? How do we put that into motion? You know, it kind of depends on how, like, how cute is this risk, right? Is this like, you don't want him going home to that gun right now? Or is this, you know, within the next few days, we want you to do this? And will they really follow through with the plan? Having a trusted family member like the daughter who's really invested and worried is great because you can really leverage her. But I think having a discussion about okay, what what is the risk and what's the likely duration of that risk? And what are all the firearms you have? So we're not just talking about like the one gun in the nightstand because you can get that out of the house, but there's the three more in the garage. And where's the daughter going to store them? Like, does she have little kids at home? Does she have a gun safe? Does she actually know how to, you know, eject the magazine and make sure the gun's not loaded and put the cable lock through? And then getting down to really the brass tacks like what is the daughter going to say when the dad comes back and says like all right i'm ready it's all good or i just want to take him to the range for a day so if you have the moment to do it working through collaboratively the details of like what is going to happen so that the daughter's not in a position of having to make those decisions on the fly and that the dad is kind of you know once you've gotten him in the place where he's ready to be forthcoming and you've he's trusting you and you're working on it together that you kind of go the distance with that while that attitude is is still in place rather than like he goes home, he decides maybe he doesn't really trust his daughter. Maybe he's not sure you're that good of a doctor in the first place. I don't really like those people. I'm not going to do what they say. Um, but yeah, I'm really thinking through those details. And this has been one of the issues that's come up when asking people to temporarily store someone else's gun, whether, again, it's the daughter, the hunting buddy, the you know local range or gun shop is... How do you help those people think through when they give the gun back? And that can be really tricky. And there's a lot of concern that, you know, more formal agencies have about liability there. One of the things I try to tell myself is in a harm reduction approach, you're not eliminating risk. And so, you know, we're not taking out the infected appendix and fixing everything. We're we're reducing the risk. We're taking the gray zone to like a little bit lighter shade of gray. And that means that it's possible that he could get the guns back when he's at risk, but at least they're not already in his house. At least when it's one in the morning and he's had a few drinks and he's depressed, he doesn't have one right there. And I know one of the ranges I've talked to has a policy where they'll take anybody's firearms, no questions asked, for 60 days. 
And I'll also give them back whenever that person asks. And I at first was like, wait, what? That defeats the whole purpose. But then I realized, you know what? It's time and space between the person and their guns. And that is time and space. It's not infinite time and space, but it's some and it's enough to put an obstacle in there. And I can imagine that the people who utilize that service, having a bunch of questions would be a barrier and knowing that they couldn't get their guns back when they wanted would be a barrier. And so lowering that level of risk is is reducing the potential for harm, even though it's not eliminating it. What if instead this particular patient that I'm seeing in the ED that night does not want to collaborate? Yeah. How do we act there? Well, then you have to ask yourself, okay, I have a few other possibilities here. I could put him on a mental health hold if I think he needs a mental health treatment and is suicidal enough that I'm really worried. And again, that'll put some time and space in between him and his guns. If he stays on a hold for two days, gets discharged from the ED, he's just going to go back home. But maybe that's helpful. Maybe he'll go to a hospital and get his depression treated. Maybe he'll get committed and become a prohibited person. And there's, you know, pluses and minuses of that for him. Because maybe going hunting or shooting with his buddies is part of his mental health. But you can't count on that in terms of the mental health hold. But it's one option, just especially temporarily. And if you really think he's high enough risk, you can think about a gun violence restraining order, a red flag law. They Those were passed, I think 19 states now have them, and they're usually passed in the wake of a big mass shooting because they're such an important tool for you know intervening when somebody has access to a gun, but not illegally so, and they're making threats. But it turns out they get used a lot more for suicide prevention. And one of the studies that looked at the risk pool in the group of people who were respondents to those kinds of orders found that For every 10 to 20 orders filed, one life was saved by suicide. So that's a pretty effective intervention. So that's something that you can consider as well. The threshold for that is a little bit higher. So it can't just be somebody who's got, you know, future risk factors and might do something. It has to be somebody who's more like acute high risk. All right. Last scenario. What about a 16-year-old male who's brought in by his very nervous mom who found a note in the drawer stating that he was going to bring a gun to school and kill students, kind of like your case at the beginning, right? She believes he has access to guns at his dad's house. He denies that that was his intention. How do you assess that situation and who is best to kind of walk through these determinations with you? That's a great, this is a great and unfortunately common situation, the access at various houses. And that can be for a kid who's got suicidal ideation or is making threats or leaving notes or just posting creepy stuff on his social media. This is one of those situations where, you know, ideally you have a school threat assessment team or just a local threat assessment team that can kind of do a wraparound investigation and talk to all parties. But that may have to be you. You know, you may have to be the one to get dad involved. This is where some knowledge of child access prevention laws may also give you some leverage where you can talk to dad about making sure that he's not breaking the law by allowing the kid to have access to guns, making sure dad understands the risk and that, you know, most school shooters do get their firearms from family members. They're not going out and buying guns on the black market. It's unusual for them to get them on the dark web. They're usually not old enough to buy them legally. They get the guns that are accessible to them in their family homes. So, Making sure parents are aware of that risk, not just saying that it's illegal, because oftentimes that's not enough of a deterrent, but really imparting the gravity of the situation. And then, you know, potentially talking to them about temporarily transferring the guns out of the house or taking more extreme steps. Like, you know, if the kid needs a mental health treatment, maybe he does need to be put on a mental health hold. 
making sure school officials know, you know, and school officials can, if they're really concerned, they can file a protective order that's specific for the school. There's a couple different types of protective orders besides the gun violence restraining order that also will make sure the kid doesn't have access to guns. Can you actually tell the school, though, like when they come in and you see them as a physician or as a psychiatrist? Can you yeah, tell so the school? Yeah, so great question that, you know, because we're not actually petitioners in California for even the gun violence restraining orders, although I utilize them not that infrequently and by calling law enforcement or a family member. And, you know, we've been so ingrained to be worried about HIPAA coming after us for this kind of stuff. But HIPAA is very specific that they do not want healthcare providers not addressing these kinds of risks because of a concern about HIPAA. So the HIPAA statute specifically makes an exception if somebody makes a serious and imminent threat of violence that we're allowed to disclose PHI to somebody who can lessen that threat to the health of the public or of the patient. And they also even go on to then say, and HIPAA expressly defers to the professional judgment of health professionals in making determinations about the nature and severity of the threat. So basically they're saying you can engage outside people or agencies to help you reduce the threat to the public or to the patient. And also we're not going to second guess you. Pulse check. Once you have assessed the risks, you are ready to act. If you have an at-risk person who's willing to cooperate, identify someone for a temporary transfer, maybe a safe family member who can safely store or even law enforcement or a gun club. Set up parameters with that conversation so they know when they will get their guns back. If they are unsafe and uncooperative, a mental health hold to provide temporary separation from their guns may be reasonable. Or, if they do not meet criteria for mental health hold and are unwilling to safety plan, this may be a good time to engage with law enforcement, the school, or family to use red flag laws. This is a legal order to remove the guns through due process. It is quite the process, but for every 10 to 20 orders placed, they estimate one life is saved from suicide. Well, that's it for Bullet Points. We hope that this is applicable for your practice. I know that it is for mine, and I've learned quite a lot. Check out the Bullet Points website for more resources like videos, webinars, and an in-depth review of Approach, Assess, and Act. Thank you to the UC Davis Emergency Department for thinking beyond the bullet holes. And thank you to OM Productions for patching the holes in our own productions. See you next time for a look at managing alcohol use disorder. <laughs>